Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, the unique program where we have conversations about worldview, all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 125. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and today I have special guest Pamela Frost, who has been on the show a number of times. She's one of our researchers, has spoken many, many times at some of our events, contributes regularly to the website, and is also going to be one of our upcoming speaker at our upcoming symposium in the spring of 2021. Pam, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joshua. It's great to be with you again. It's good to have you back on the program. Um, you know, I, I was just talking with somebody before we did the podcast, and she was telling me how helpful the podcast has been, but specifically how helpful the content that we've done with you over the years. And, um, you know, I think going back, I, I, look, or I look back and I was like, you know what, I don't think we have ever asked Pam, what is your story? How did you come into the fold of Truth Exchange? You contribute, like I said earlier, uh, to the website via uh, your writings, but also as a speaker, now podcaster. How did you get a hold of this hermeneutic? And, and then how did you get connected with Dr. Jones? Oh, it's a fun story, really. Um, and really well illustrative of the difference between oneism and twoism. My husband and I were in a wonderful Bible-centered church, Bible-believing church, missions-focused and oriented, and all of a sudden we experienced a radical shift um, at, that was mind-boggling. We, instead of, you know, your regular prayer meetings where you're praying to God the Father in the name of the Son based on his blood atonement and the power of the Holy Spirit, um, suddenly we had uh, labyrinth prayer walks and the church set up a um, large, I think 40 foot diameter labyrinth in the gym with 11 stations of the cross on it. And it was very contemplative, very mystical. Um, and we were just going, what, what is this? I mean, what on earth? So anyways, I ended up feeling compelled to study that thing. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. I, all of a sudden, we were shifting, frankly, from biblical prayer to mysticism, to contemplative spirituality, to, you know, uh, the basic uh, premise of that labyrinth was, you know, you walk these, these circuits till you get to the very center of the labyrinth, and that's where you meet with God. God is in the center of a labyrinth, and that's how you meet with God. So very antithetical to what the Bible teaches, but everybody was flocking to this new experience. You had to walk the labyrinth to hear from God. And I started researching it and spent a year researching it because it introduced me, frankly, to all kinds of stuff that I had never heard of. It introduced me to the mystical spirituality of medieval mysticism, the contemplative prayer movement. It introduced me to, ironically, elements of it were creation worship, um, uh, very earth-centered, very, uh, actually very globalistic, uh, thinking of it in terms of applying to our topic today, very feminist, um, liberation theology, was these were all components of it and there was a um there was a recorded see at that time you had a cd and you had headphones and you walked this the 11 circuits of the labyrinth with this cd and it essentially um had you it, it, it the content couched very oneist pagan ideologies that are antithetical to scripture, to biblical twoism, it couched them in biblical terminology very cleverly. So that, well, that's biblical. They're using a Bible verse over here and over there. And that, you know, it was confusing. It was a spirit of confusion. So I described it to my husband as I researched the labyrinth and its origins and kind of found out all about it. I, I, I described the experience I was having as I was trying to 
organize a pot of boiling spaghetti noodles that were constantly churning and moving in on one another and changing shape. And that's, that's how the project felt to understand what it was. But it gave me a huge education of this convergence of things like creation, spirituality, um, radical feminine, I mean, radical feminist ideology, liberation theology, um, you know, essentially just earth worship um, components in this all in the name of Christianity with a few Bible verses sprinkled here and there. And um, so I ended up writing a 30 page paper on it. I was very concerned um, about it and documented that at that time, I didn't know the terminology between oneism and twoism at that. Uh, this was probably back in 2005 uh, about when this came out. And um, so a friend at that time um, gave me a book called Pagans in the Pews, which was the shorter version of Dr. Jones' work, um, Spirit Wars. And I started reading it and Pagans in the Pews, I started to get it as I was reading it. I'm going, well, that's what's happening here is it's the shift from biblical theism to pagan monism. Pagans are being, you know, they're being created in the pews and Christians are being converted to this. So anyways, I wrote that paper and somebody had given me the book. And um, so I tried calling the website. I wanted to order some more materials. You know, they, there were some um, cassettes available at that time. And, so I called expecting this huge ministry and, you know, it's going to get the bank of operators. And I called and I, it was Rebecca Jones, Dr. Jones' wife, who answered the phone. Right, right. And she asked me my story and I told her about the labyrinth and that I'd written this 30-page paper that I'd turned into all the elders of that church. Um, and uh, my husband and I got invited to an event at the Jones home. and. I, with great fear and trembling, I said to my husband, who my husband is also a university professor, and Dr. Jones um, was, you know, New Testament scholar at Westminster. And I was very intimidated, little old me. And I said to my husband, do you think I dare take this paper to Dr. Jones and ask him to read it? And I said, oh my gosh, he's this big theologian. You know, he'd never read my paper. And I said, oh, no, of course he will. Of course, take it. And I did and <laughs> very timidly asked Peter to read it. And um, he read it and loved it. And I've been working with Truth Exchange ever since. So <laughs> That's such a great story. And it's an, I think it's an empowering story um, that, that Christians in the pews can hear things and be aware and and get informed and use this hermeneutic, the oneism and twoism hermeneutic, and really assess and give the and you have discernment, right? Have discernment about what is being taught, um, because ultimately it goes comes back to that great question: Are you one us? Are you two us? Or do you worship creation or do you worship the Creator? Absolutely. So thank you, Pam, for sharing that. Um, in 2021, we're going to have an online symposium. This is the first time we're ev we've ever done an online symposium. So it'll be quite, um, quite an experiment. But um, Dr. Jones has framed the symposium with a question. He says, how should Christians articulate the deep truths of the gospel in today's caustic and hostile culture? Like never before, we are facing massive divisions within the culture and within the church. We're divided over how churches and beyond that, how businesses and schools should function during COVID-19. We're divided over how Christians should vote. We're divided to some extent over identity and sexuality. We're divided over issues of race and social justice. The divisions threaten the charity and unity we knew in the past, which now provokes serious disunity and even expressions of sin. Such divisions go deep and threaten the state of biblical orthodoxy for years to come. Pam, you have been tasked with the topic of globalism. Yes, what sir. 
is globalism? Well, in a nutshell, globalism is, um, well, let me put it this way. At the Tower of Babel, God separated the nations into distinct nations with distinct languages. And in a minute, I'd like to go into why that was necessary and why that was beneficial. And globalism now seeks to unite the nations under a one world global leader and a one world global religion. So it's antithetical to God. Um, I just want to read here Acts 17, 26 to put this context here. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And um, let me just go back. I want to explain why the distinctions of global boundaries is important to God. Um, and I just want to go back just very briefly here to the foundational understanding. In Genesis 3, we all know, you know, God had warned Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree in the middle of the, you know, of, of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. The day you eat thereof, um, you will die. So Satan comes and says, um, has God really said, well, you surely won't die. Um, and in the day you eat thereof, you'll become like God knowing good and evil. Well, the knowledge of good and evil, in a sense, Adam and Eve, from an objective point of knowing the difference between right and wrong, they knew the distinction between right and wrong. God had set limits on them. It's good to eat of all the other fruit of the tree, of the gardens, uh, the trees of the garden, but you shall not eat of this one tree lest you die. So there's a limit, there's a boundary. That's not good, don't do that. So what was Satan here saying? He was tempting Adam and Eve to step out from under the ontological privilege that God imbued humanity with, being created in the image and likeness of God. What incredible privilege, privileged as the highest, the pinnacle of God's creation over all the other aspects of creation, to rule, to have dominion under God's authority. So the serpent was saying, well, be your own God, determine God and evil for, good and evil for yourself, you determine it. Um, so in the fall, they went from the implicit goodness and the beautiful privilege of being created in the image and likeness of the creator with the character and goodness of God being intrinsic to created human beings um, to then falling under the deception of the serpent <clears throat> to claim that they could create good and evil for themselves, the understanding of it, um, to be in line with the serpent's lie of what is good and evil. So without realizing it, what they were exchanging was the, the goodness of God in which God had created them for the lying, deception, falsehood, and evil of the adversary. So mankind has now fallen, and every intention of the heart is evil. And we see right away that Cain, he slays Abel, murderer. The New Testament tells us in John 8, 44, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He was never created in the image and likeness of God. He was a high and holy angel, but he was not created in the image and likeness of God. His jealousy of human beings with this high position that God entrusted to humanity and created us with, mm -hmm. um, he hates. And so he wanted to destroy that image and likeness of God, to mar it, to defile it. So Cain murders Abel. And then we know in John 10.10 10, that Satan, well, that the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, the thief who that's the illustration of Jesus is the good shepherd. The thief climbs up by another way. The good shepherd only enters through the gate, you know, and he is the gate for the sheep. So um, by the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 
I always wondered why does it say the Lord God said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Mm. Okay. And so then God comes down and confuses the language. Well, I've, I had to really think deeply into that. You know, so what does he mean that nothing they purpose to do will be impossible for them? I mean, he's the only omnipotent God, the only omnipotent being. Well, I've come to understand that what it means here is that a united pagan humanity working together as one on the earth would know no bounds of the depth of evil Mm. to which they would go. And it was God's preservation and protection that he confused the languages and he <clears throat> excuse me and he spread the peoples out into nations and then and then um drew boundaries around those nations mm-hmm. and then his intention through the gospel as we read in revelation 5 is that through the gospel through evangelism that he would redeem some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on earth. And that only in Christ, the Messiah, would we become one people in him, in Mm -hmm. his kingdom. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, he doesn't eliminate our, all our cultural distinctions, distinctions, our language distinctions. This is why, um, you know, like uh, organizations like Wycliffe have uh, been devoted to translating the Bible into every language on the planet, to take it to every people group on the planet. Mm-hmm. And so just in a nutshell, well, God mercifully divided the nations for a redemptive, um, protective purpose. Um, globalism seeks to undo all of the distinctions and the divisions to reunite the nations under a one world global government, under a one world leader dictatorial, authoritarian, totalitarian, and a one world united religion. So that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, globalism in a nutshell. You know, I, as I was preparing for this podcast, um, one, I had listened to a podcast that I'll bring up later on, on from a TED talk, but I'm trying to, I was trying to think about what and when in history did we see globalization um yeah where do we actually see globalization in the past and you know i can think about maybe the roman empire as a type of globalization perhaps um where there is one central power overseeing everything you know and i was thinking about the talk that um jeff ventrella did on the podcast on uh, law and policy and he talked about how uh it's actually satanic to centralize power. Yes. To have absolutely. it all hubbed into one, one right. force. Whereas um, twoist would say, no, power is, 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 uh, is broken up and, and um, it's decentralized. Uh, that way that, that it would foster uh, true productivity, true flourishing. And that's and that's kind of the promise of globalization, isn't it? Is that that globalization will will actually be productive? It'll bring unity, peace, uh, free. Um, well, not freedom. I was just curious about that that issue of freedom. I wonder some of the, the freedoms just um, that we experience as as Americans that would be gone under They'd under all be gone under a globalized system. Yes. So what would be the different, what would be the, what would, so there's, that's globalism. What, what would, is there an opposite to global, globalism? Um, are there m- more than one option to globalism? Because I think of nationalism and that seems like that's a bad word now. Well, it's, it, it, in history, um, like for instance, the Nazis in Germany certainly were nationalistic. They were national socialists um, and they they used their national patriotism as a very globalist pagan oneist 
uh, basis mm. to want to con conquer the world. You mentioned the Roman Empire. If you really think about it, empire in general, I mean, these seeds were planted in the heart of fallen man. I believe this, these globalist seeds. And you look at that through history. Consider Genghis Khan, for instance. I mean, what, what would stir up the Mongol hordes to expand and, you know, take over as much of the known world as they possibly could at that time. And um, on always the gods over that, you know, globalist, expansionist, um, colonial, imperialist drive, they're pagan deities. Like Genghis mm. Khan, for instance, worshipped the god of a particular mountain in Mongolia. That was his mountain god. Mm -hmm. And but you, you just think of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you know, there was this urge, you know, Alexander the Great, we will conquer and take over the whole world and implement our culture, our religion, our ideas, or else assimilate them all into one. This is, this is from the fall. Right. And, it's, it, you know, this, this is the driving force of unregenerate pagan uh, dominant uh, cultures that, like Japan in World War II, um, uh, emperor worship, and we are, we are a better people than everybody else. We're going to conquer. And it always gives the excuse of the um, powerful people to believe they're better than others. They have more value in life. And so they can kill and murder to do whatever they need to dominate. So I, I think this is a um, a theme within fallen humanity. I think um, the globalist push is um, intrinsic to fallen man. Now, in our contemporary society, the one organization that kind of epitomizes globalism uh, from 1945 forward is the United Nations. Mm. And what we're under right now um, with this great push to globalization that's called uh, the Great Reset, which we've been familiar with and talking about, and everybody by now is, I'm sure, heard of. And, and the Great Reset, is, that's a term coined by Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive um, officer of the World Economic Forum, who, you know, his annual economic meetings in uh, Davos, Switzerland, um, he has long been planning for a uh, an undoing of national sovereignties, a, an alignment of all nations under a one world sovereign government would be tyrannical. You would have no more, um, no representative government. It would be top down, completely top down. And, um, and it would align up with the United Nations goals, mm -hmm. um, particularly based on the United Nations Agenda 21, which in 1992 at the Rio Earth Summit was the fruit that came out of that meeting that said the plan we're laying out now, the plan for the 21st century of the entire world. Mm. And the United Nations now is calling for Agenda 2030. We're in, we're in um, the year 2020. Well, Agenda 2030 demands the complete implementation of Agenda 21 by the year um, 2030. So that's 10 years from now mm -hmm. that they demand that those globalist, that the entire world will be under a global world government headed by um, globalist entities like the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, and um, globalist groups like this. Globaliz globalization would have to, it would assume or presuppose that it would have some sort of, of worldview in play, a view of God, specifically uh, religion broadly, uh, yeah. values, ethics, uh, monetary system. Yep. Uh, I, I was listening to a podcast uh, this morning to refresh myself on some of these things. And this podcast was back in 2017. And it said, you know, we're thinking too small when we talk about raising the minimum wage, the national minimum, minimum wage. We need to get beyond that because we have to think in terms of, of a global system. Um, we, we, as far as technology, technology will never advance unless we think in terms of globalization. 
we have to think of in terms of, of removing borders. Um, let's get rid of borders because that is a hindrance to, to our human flourishing. It is a hindrance to productivity. But it was something that I thought was interesting was somebody asked the question towards the end of the podcast. It was, a, again, this was a TED talk. And they said, um, how, can, how are governments actually going to be able to, to bring this on? Because there's already a stark contrast in the way that a number of governments globally work. And the speaker said, the only way that, that this can be done is through, and this is 2017, mm-hmm. a TED talk. This isn't this isn't some crazy website, some obscure YouTuber. This this is um, this is a TED Talk, mainstream content. Only a, a catastrophe can shake humankind and open the path to a system of global governance. And I thought, wow, we are we're there. <laughs> we are there. I mean, here we had this whole year has been a catastrophe. Uh, in terms of because of an illness. And wherever you stand on whether or not it's truly deadly, um, uh, the government has authority to do X, Y, and Z, to, to shut down churches and, and open up strip clubs and keep bars open, you know, wherever, wherever you stand on that, let's all put that aside. This catastrophe has radically shifted the way people think. Right. And, 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 and not just that, it has radically divided us. And then again, that brings us back to the fact that we're having a symposium to talk about some of these things. And, and what is a Christian response? So Pam, you've been doing a lot of research on this, but I, I wonder what is a Christian response um, as we watch the UN and the, the, I forget what you said, the United Forum? Um. Uh, the World Economic Forum. Okay, so what is a Christian response? I mean, uh, is this uh, is this our moment to to build monasteries and hide away? Um, what do we do? What do we do? Well, it's it is certainly not a time to build monasteries and hide, but it is also certainly not the time to be influenced by the prevailing cultural ideology and succumb to it and adapt to it as we see in the woke movement, which you've, uh, so many of the speakers are going to be addressing, which um, I, I just, I was even looking this morning at the, so the um, suggested reading list for young children of a prominent um, uh, once evangelical um, kind of consortium website, and the books they're recommending for young Christian children are all radically woke. I mean, and by woke, I mean um, social justice, um, everyone who's white is a racist, uh, white privilege, you know, all the agenda. Um, and it's, it's substituting as different gospels. So we need to know the true biblical gospel and have the courage of the biblical faith in the face of opposition, because it's not politically correct. Um, I believe we have uh, Trojan horses entering into the body of Christ from all kinds of uh, directions, particularly through the social justice movement, which just is a reminder historically back you know, when Walter Rauschenbusch, the liberal uh, Protestant, um, was undermining the gospel, he did it by shifting uh, emphasis away from the biblical gospel of Christ's blood atonement for sinners to the social gospel of utopian flourishing for everybody on earth, which is a big component of globalism. And it's really saying that we as fallen human beings are God. We're going to be God. We're going to fix everything in our own strength and way and power. And um, we really can't rule ourselves. We need a global uh, governmental structure under the power elites that are benevolent. They're going to take care of us. Just one interesting quote I just read from Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum um, on, on their website with a picture of a young man smiling. And the caption underneath is, 
you will own nothing, but you will be happy. <laughs> so that's, that's the globalist plan for it's the elimination of private property, of national sovereignty, of representative government, of freedom of conscience, the freedom of religion. Everybody has to be in lockstep to do the same thing. So for Christians, we want to know biblical truth. And we want to stand on it in the love of the gospel, shouldn't the power of the spirit. Shouldn't Christians want to give away their property? Shouldn't they want to give away their means? Um, you, you go back to the early church and you see that, that they had held all things in common. What would well, your... there was that, the context there. Number one, it was voluntary. And it was meeting an immediate pressing need at the time. Ananias and Sapphira were not condemned because they didn't give everything they owned, but because they lied. They, they weren't capitalists, to... you mean? <laughs> they <didn't> do... <laughs> their great sin was not capitalism? Right. Yeah, their great sin was lying and misrepresenting um, the reality of what they were giving. They were wanting to hold some back for themselves, which Peter said, hey, that's fine. It was yours. You could, you could do what you wanted with it. Mm. You weren't forced to give it. Now, I just want to say... Um, and I heard um, on your last podcast with um, um, Thaddeus Williams, which I loved, he pointed out that while Christians are accused of being, we're selfish and we're the cause of all the evil in the world and it's terrible, um, that Christians have actually been the most generous people on the face of the planet. We've stood against, in, tr we've truly stood against injustice. <clears throat> Slavery was overthrown because of biblical principles of male and female created in the image and likeness of God. All human beings created in the, the worth, the value of being in the image and likeness of God. So they're to be retreated, they're treated with respect and dignity and we're to take the gospel to all people. So um, he, I just appreciated him pointing that out. So people use that Ananias and Sapphira example of all, you know, the believers then had all things in common. This was a particular time in history. It was not mandatory. It was voluntary. And I also want to say, too, historically, if you look at since the Industrial Revolution in the um, uh, 1700s to the um, to 1800s, the initial Industrial Revolution albeit with the many problems and child labor and you know, all the things that accompanied that, there were some evils, but it did set the stage for a capitalist um, society that extended um, increase in income to more people in the Western developed nations, which is where the industrial revolution was taking place, than any place on, on earth. And capitalism has done more to lift human beings out of poverty Would, than any economic system. And it's not perfect. We're fallen human, human beings. But to just want to dismiss capitalism with what Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum calls stakeholder capitalism is, is, to, is to dismiss the means that lifts people out of poverty and gives them um, opportunity. Um, and just by the way, stakeholder capitalism is just a clever name for socialism and actually for communism. Okay, so uh, yeah, my question was going to be, um, capitalism is a system that would not be embraced by globalism. It would be kicked out and socialism would be the system that would come into play. Um, the um, and, and then healthcare, I assume, very much would be kind of an all-encompassing. The government runs the healthcare. And makes the decisions. Who lives, who dies, who gets treatment, who doesn't. Who lives, who dies, who gets treatment. When um, back in 2000, 2007, uh, back when I was street preaching, and I wound up in, um, in Utah, and I remember meeting an elderly woman who moved to the States from Canada because she was trying to get away from the healthcare system that the, that the Canadian government would not permit her uh, surgery to remove some sort of tumor. 
because they they thought that she had lived enough the course Long of enough. her life. So she so, so she was like, I'm out of here. And mm-hmm. she came to the states and was able to get the tumor, and that was like had been like I think 10, 15 years uh, past. And so uh, so she was 15, you know 10, 15 years on, on the other side of the surgery. And I was like, wow, that, that's that's evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean it is evil. The intent is not good. The intent is um, is driven by the evil one. And, and actually, let me just, I want to illustrate that because people need to understand, I mean, there's this big push for how great the United Nations is. And um, I just want to read you a couple of quotes. The, um, the basis of the United Nations um, was really founded on unbiblical principles, again, to undo the Tower of Babel, to, I mean, to, uh, to rebuild the Tower of Babel, essentially. It's a, it's a um, rebuilding of Babel in, right. from the 20th century and the 21st century to bring it to fruition in the 21st century is what they're desiring. Um, and back to, um, I want to go to the roots of the spirit behind the United Nations. Um, a key name um, in education is Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller was um, assistant undersecretary uh, of the United Nations, um, well, for quite, quite a long time. And Robert Mueller developed what's called the World <clears throat> Core Curriculum. And in our country, remember under President Obama, we had the core, <clears throat> the core curriculum. Um, I'm missing a word on that. Uh, help me out with that. Do you remember Joshua? Yeah. Robert Mueller, his curriculum was called the World Core Curriculum. Uh-huh. Obama picked up on it and had a oh, Common Core. Common Core, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Common Core. Yeah. Okay which has been um, infiltrating all of our schools um, for decades. And so let me just tell you, Robert Mueller was a follower. Let me see if I can find the quote. This is from, uh, this is a quote from his uh, Robert Mueller curriculum of the Common Core. This was he said, the underlying philosophy upon which the Robert Mueller School is based will be found in the teachings set forth in the books of Alice A. Bailey by the Tibetan teacher, Jual Kool. Okay, uh, to many of our listeners, they may not have heard of Alice Bailey or the Tibetan Jual Kool, but this is essentially theosophy. Mm-hmm. Philosophy is a system of oneness spirituality that all is one, all is divine, the divine cosmos, and we're all evolving into divinity. Alice Bailey channeled 24 books from a spirit entity calling himself Jual Kool or the Tibetan. And the, the, and, and the world core curriculum is based entirely on the demonic writings of Alice Bailey in these 24 books, which just in a nutshell, in her writings, many of the books I've read, which is uh, a really creepy thing to do, but it's also informative. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, in her books, um, uh, Jesus and Buddha are two avatars of an ascended hierarchy of ascended masters. And so they're, they're the avatars for the different ages in which we live. Jesus was the avatar of love and the Buddha was the avatar of wisdom. Hmm. Um, and she was, one of the books is called The Reappearance of the Christ. Now, this is not the biblical Christ. This would be an antichrist. Mm-hmm. And so is this the, the cosmic Christ, the same thing? Yes, the same thing as the cosmic universal Christ, an antichrist spirituality that denies the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, denies his uniqueness uh, in his that, you know, that he is he is fully God and fully man, his um, unique incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection, um, and the uniqueness of the gospel. Um, to replace it with a universal gospel that all are, all are one, all are God, and ultimately we achieve full self-realization as we achieve divinity. 
Yeah. As we achieve our universal divinity. And that comes from consciousness, right? Yes. How, how does that all play into? Because that was something that came up a lot in in the things I've been reading on globalism is, is the importance of consciousness. And, um, and the consciousness is not just human consciousness. I mean, it plays into it, but a universal, a cosmos consciousness of all things. Yes. And let me give you a couple more quotes from Alice Bailey, yeah. because this is behind the United Nations. This is behind globalism. This is behind the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, all these organizations that are calling, clamoring. We must have a one world global government, one world global economic system, and we must be ruled by a world court and a world leader. Hmm. Um, so this is what Alice Bailey said in her book, Externalization of the Hierarchy. The hierarchy were the spirits channeling these demonic messages to her. She says, um, she was writing after World War II in, in this book, and she says, years ago I said that the war which may follow this one, meaning World War II, would be waged in the field of the world religions. Such a war <clears throat> will not work out, however, in a similar period of extreme carnage and blood. It will be fought largely with mental weapons in the world of thought. It will involve the emotional realm. Okay, so it's gonna be a battle over the world religions to be fought in the emotional, mental realm. And here's what she says in her book, um, Discipleship in the New Age. She says, within the United Nations, and this is to your point of consciousness, within the United Nations is the germ and the seed of a great international and meditating reflective group, a group of thinking and informed men and women in whose hands lies the destiny of humanity. This is largely under the control of many fourth-ray disciples. That's, that's a very complicated uh, thing to understand, but these would be high-level occultists, would be the fourth-ray disciples. If you could but realize it, and their point of meditative focus is the, in, is the intuitional or buddhic plane, the plane upon which all hierarchical, and the hierarchy is these demonic spirits, upon which, uh, upon which all hierarchical activity is today to be found. Okay, so Alice Bailey, uh, and, and she, in her writing, she just praises the United Nations. She calls... Um, the church of jesus christ the black lodge the evil and she calls like freemasonry and occultism the white lodge which is good and forms the foundation according to her of the united nations and these globalist institutions but notice that she wrote here in discipleship of the new age and robert Mueller, author of world core curriculum said he got all his ideas from alice bailey that's what's behind the world core curriculum. She says, um, it'll be a meditative consciousness that will be intuitional and will achieve consciousness on the Buddhic plane. Well, the Buddhic plane would be Buddhist um, meditative consciousness, which we talked about in a prior podcast on um, mindfulness meditation. And um, there's an article on, you know, on the website on salvation by extinction, mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. um, that ex explains it in a little bit further. But, but this is the consciousness. Yeah. So we have to enter the Buddhic plane of this universal consciousness to achieve this one world global unity and perfection, um, essentially to attain utopia. Make okay, Here, here's, 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 a, here's a response I've seen. Okay, I, I don't want to embrace all of that. I don't want to embrace the consciousness. I don't want to embrace um, this, this uh, one world government, so to speak. But I do see that for human flourishing, for the love of fellow man, 
that globalism is good. It's Christian, in fact, to have a globalized uh, a worldview that that uh, that holds to globalism, because isn't isn't in the end, Pam, isn't the when Christ comes, we'll all be under His rule, all united. So wouldn't us working for this be a help to bring in the the eschaton that we desire so dearly? love of fellow man, taking care of all the problems of the world. I mean, shouldn't we care about those things? Yeah, well, those ideas, is, as you're articulating, and this, this globalist agenda, well, this is a good thing. Um, and you're saying, well, shouldn't we bring in the eschaton of Christ? Well, I would say that globalism does bring in one eschaton, but it's not that of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is actually falling prey to the spirit of Antichrist. And by that, I'm not even looking for an eschatological Antichrist, but an ontological Antichrist spirit. You're exchanging the truth of God for the lie and worshiping the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. And mm -hmm. so you're, you're in, in the name of thinking you're doing good, you're actually buying into the serpent's lie that you will know good and evil for yourself, that you will be God, that you're going to do it. And, you know, it just it goes back to what are the origins really of socialism. Mm. You go back to Plato. You go back to um, Plato's Republic. Hmm. Explain Where, that, Pam. Explain that. Well, you know, he spelled out a system where... Um, it would ultimately, the, the, the utopia, you know, and he, he believed in the lost city of Atlantis that had somehow sunk to the bottom of the ocean and a lot of New Agers and occultists are still looking for Atlantis. Um, but he put forth the idea of Atlantis as the ideal, but it sunk and, and fell. But if we just give the power to a utopian group of what he called philosopher kings, who are the enlightened human beings. They have the right to determine who, who else lives or dies. They have the right of life and death. Um, they have the right of whether you eat or don't eat. Um, so his utopia would be in a globalist um, um, system under um, these these authoritarian, totalitarian philosopher kings. The individual person would have no right, would not own private property, um, and their lives would have no value. All would be determined by the philosopher kings. And then Thomas More wrote the book on utopia, which is no place, and it was also a tyrannical system of dystopian rule of essentially of, of tyranny under a, a small oligarchy of tyrants um, over the rest of humanity. So uh, that is really the historical basis for socialism comes back down from Plato and Thomas More. And so while it sounds good, if you're actually, for all your good intentions, if you think you're doing... Um, good for the planet and but you're in reality trying to implement a system that is of serpent spirituality it's not going to do well for human beings and it's going to end in tyrannical domination the devaluing of life it's going to promise prosperity and life and goodness and it's going to end in the exact opposite because the goal of well, if you think of it, I mean, the goal of Satan in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve um, and Adam and said, um, has God really said, you surely will not die. And the day you eat thereof, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So just become, you know, cast off God's authority, rebel against him, and you're going to be self-realized as divine. Well, that didn't end so well. Plunged all of humanity in the sin, suffering, and death that is the wages of our fallen condition, the wages of sin. So the true good for the planet is the preaching 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the true unity, as I mentioned earlier, is every tribe and tongue and people and nation having some from among them who have been redeemed, purchased by the blood of the lamb and are now made one in the unity of the body of Christ. So the globalism a la the United Nations World Economic Forum, International Monetary Forum, uh, Forum and a whole um, group of other globalist um, uh, agencies, um, it's a counterfeit and a substitute of the only true biblical unity there is, mm -hmm. redeemed by the blood of the lamb, some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So it's a counterfeit of that. It's a diabolical counterfeit, and it does not, well, it promises good. Well, let me just illustrate that uh, really quickly. I mentioned Agenda 21. Yeah and the sustainable development goals, which mm -hmm. we're on fast track with COVID and this globe push to globalization. And we talked about that briefly in the previous yes. podcasts on- uh, And I just want to re quickly remind people that sustainable, oh yeah, we, we want to take care of things and make sure we don't ruin everything. That's not what it means. Mm -hmm. Sustainable development is the worship of nature and it's the, um, it's the diminution of humanity. Mankind is evil. If you think about it, um, Satan is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He right. never loved humanity. Right. So following his program that promises utopia right. is not going to end in benefit, but it's going to end in destruction for human beings and for the whole planet. Because right. he doesn't give a hoot about the planet. All the talk about environmentalism and saving species and all that, Satan doesn't really care. He just right, wants and that's, to that's the people. argument. That's the argument for globalization is is that we as um, because we're we've been separate powers, different nations have caused so many problems. The only thing to fix these problems, i.e., um, the uh, the climate change and so on, is globalization. Well, and just as you know from Dr. Cal Beisner, whom you've interviewed, and he talks about the uh, very minuscule um, change in climate. It, it, climate has changed through the centuries. Um, and that with a slight increase in warming, people thrive. There are fewer deaths. So it's a false scenario. It's a false narrative. Um, it's just simply not true. But let me, let me just give you quickly, um, I'd like to just quickly go back to the world core curriculum of what, of what it attempts to do and what it has done. Because this is really conditioned, even Christians, to be at a point where they can ask those kind of questions that you're asking of, you know, why isn't this a good thing? It'll solve global warming and we just have to come together. Well, here, is, here are some of the goals of the world um, core curriculum that have been implemented in public education probably since the 1980s under Robert Mueller. Um, and the goal of it was education towards global citizenship. Um, particularly, one of the primary focuses was to get children out of the parents' home and into the public schools as early as possible. And I believe Joe Biden just recently said um, that in his administration, he would insist that children from the ages of two and three have to go to public school. So the goal is to educate, to de-educate children away from allegiance to their parents and um, from identity in the um, family unit and to um, depatriotize them. You, know, you have to eliminate patriotism, nationalism, a sense of national identity, um, and instill in them earth-centered beliefs to the worship of the earth, of nature. Um, create, you know, create in them a sense of global citizenship and give them socialist values. Um, in a collectivist mindset, and then ground them on the principles of Agenda 21, that they're going to all be going, oh, to save the planet, we have to implement Agenda 21. The other thing 
with that, um, I know I'm, I'm made a little bit of a left turn, but this is something I really wanted to mention that part of the curriculum is also the sexualization of children. Um, let me see if I can find my one. Where did I put it? Um, an organization affiliated with the United Nations in 1964 was called CFIS. Mm -hmm. And here I found my piece of paper. Seems like whoever controls the conversation on uh, whoever, yeah, whoever dominates the conversation of sexuality controls much of the way the game is played. Absolutely. And this is um, CECUS, uh, which it's an acronym that stands for Secu Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. Um, it currently goes just by CECUS, Sex Ed for Social Change. But in 1964, it was founded by a woman named Dr. Mary Calderon, who was a medical director for Planned Parenthood. Mm. And she was a 60-year-old woman who, in 1964, started writing and developing curriculum for um, public education, books uh, for parents and for children. She wanted to sexualize children. <laughs> she believed that... Um, that all children need, needed access, um, accurate information about sexuality so they could, because we're sexual beings. And so even children should be allowed to start living out their sexuality and, exp and experiencing it. Um, and so she started this movement, which then it started, I mean, this is really amazing. And this is, uh, CECUS is a, um, uh, an NGO of the United Nations. And this is one of the goals of the World Core curriculum is to sexualize children mm -hmm. too. So this organization um, even, I mean, we, we wonder, for instance, just in our area, our representative, our local state representative was the author of a K through 12 sex ed curriculum that is outright pornographic. Mm. And that's what we're facing in our um, state in California. And, and I just wondered how on earth can this, can this be? And then I discovered as I was researching the United Nations and Robert Mueller and Alice Bailey and all these influences that from the 1960s, this has been the goal of this organization that's been actively promoted by the United Nations and actively contributing to the curriculum in our public education. And also CECUS um, at that time too, was they, they had no qualms about introducing pornographic material to the youngest of children. So this is, so this is why, and, and this is all towards education, mm -hmm. towards globalism, yeah. towards the one, wild, one world united government under a one world dominant leader, under a one world religion. This is going to be mysticism and lived out and experienced through consciousness on the Buddhic plane. Mm -hmm. Pam, I think you have clearly um, demonstrated why this is an evil system. And I keep coming back in my mind, you know, what are Christians to do? Right. And, and, um, and I think that you have clearly laid out a good response. And I really look forward to your talk in March when the symposium takes place for you to develop more of that. And I wanted to close with a, a uh, comment from Dr. Joe Boot, who's one of our senior teaching fellows. And I think he echoes a lot of what you have said today and probably will say in the future. And he was talking about, um, globalism and one of his pieces on his website the eicc ezra institute for christian culture did i say right or contemporary christian culture is that right something like that eicc i think so <laughs> okay sorry joe um but he says the christian must start by acknowledging that no form of government can overcome the problem of sin in order Amen. to fix man and society right you were talking about that with babel 
Human beings are not essentially good and simply in need of the right socio-political environment to flourish and embody an ideal order. Rather, our hearts are deceitful and sin is pervasive, Jeremiah 17.9. This means that in the Christian view, the primary role of the state is the restraint of evil and the commending of righteousness not providing socio-political salvation through technocratic means. Political institutions that profess to be able to do more than the structure of the state was ordained by God to do are dangerous and pretentious. Absolutely. And that, I mean, and it falls right into the serpent's lie and his plan for humanity, which is destruction, not blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love that quote from Joe Booth. Yeah. Pam, well done. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Again, I really look forward to hearing how you develop this talk more uh, and where you're going to go with it. Um, So until then, that'll be in the spring of 2021, the state of our disunion. Pam, thanks again for being on the program today. Thanks, Joshua. This concludes our episode of the Truth Exchange Podcast, a unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. Be sure to drop us a line, let us know how you think we're doing, or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, this podcast is only made possible from friends like you.